So a question, which is especially ironic considering what we've been doing for the last 10 minutes, but who else here is suffering from a little bit of Christmas overload? Anybody? I'm kind of there. I actually, I have a friend who was obligated to celebrate seven different Christmases this week. Uh, he just finished up his seventh yesterday. I haven't heard how that went, but between family and friends and coworker and all the different obligations, seven different Christmases he had to have. And, um, and I think it's maybe not inappropriate to say that there's a little bit of Christmas hangover going on, uh, especially for me, since these days Christmas starts the day after Thanksgiving. Now, we've been doing Christmas for a very long time. Um, but you know, traditionally, the cure for hangover is a little bit of the hair of the dog that bit you. So let's, let's ease out of Christmas with just one last uh, revisiting of the Christmas story, and then we can turn our gaze to 2019 uh, and put Christmas in the rearview mirror. And so to do that this morning, I want to ask you just some questions about the Christmas story, because after all, we've been talking a lot about the Christmas story for the last month, uh, and you've sure heard a lot about it over the course of your life. It's one of the most common stories that's been repeated for the last 2,000 years. So specifically, I want to ask you about the secondary characters of the nativity, right? You know you've got Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, right? You've got your core holy family, but there are some supporting characters in the story, Right? So, for example, who, um, who did the angels reveal the, the birth of Jesus to out in the fields? Good. You've been paying attention. Okay. Um, who witnessed Jesus' birth and brought him uh, very expensive gifts? Great. Who else witnessed the birth of Jesus? So, there's some angels. Yep. Did I hear sheep? I mean, yeah, the, yeah, the sheep definitely witnessed it. All right, let's clarify. What other humans witnessed the birth of Jesus? We, we got the shepherds. We got, we got the wise men. Anyone else? Well, Mary and Joseph, no, they're the thing. Yeah, little drummer boy apparently witnessed the birth of Jesus because he was there. Man, you guys are making this hard. All right, biblically, humans... So here's the crazy thing. You all have heard the Christmas story every year for as long as you've been alive. You know, whether you're a believer or not, like this thing is pervasive, right? And so let me tell you this. There were some people in between the shepherds and the wise men who witnessed the birth story of Jesus. Anybody? Yeah. Aha! One. I got one person. Oh, it's the pastor. <laughs> one guy. He does this for a living. All right, right? Okay, so here's the thing. There is this hidden part of the nativity story, this most well-known story in the world, and there is this part that almost nobody knows because we skip right over it. We, we know about the shepherds. We know about the wise men. There is a, a, a two people, Simeon and Anna, who in between the shepherds and the wise men, they were a part of the nativity story, and yet we never or almost never read that passage, and most of us aren't even able to identify it as a part of the story. But it is. It's right there. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, this hidden secret story of the nativity. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, um, which if you, you know, pay attention, that's where the Christmas story is, is Matthew, and then Luke 2 is where a lot of the Christmas story is. We're going to be looking specifically at the birth of Jesus, but we're going to be taking this angle, we're going to be looking at the birth of Jesus through the lens of this forgotten story and these two witnesses of Jesus' life. And, um, you know, I know it's after Christmas, but I feel like we need, we need something a little, make it a little more Christmassy. Chris, can you help me out? Ah, there it is. 
There it is. See, it's Christmas. We got, we got to do this right. We got to set the, set the tone, all right? So as we read the, the passage this morning, let, let's, let's read this as, and, and plug this in as if we were hearing it through the nativity on Christmas morning, okay? So here we go. When the time, uh, so verse 21 is the shepherds have just left, all right? So the shepherds came. They just left in verse 21. Verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who is righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took the baby in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation." which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and the sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Merry Christmas. I'm not sure why this gets skipped. I have a theory. My theory is no animals. Shepherds had sheep, wise men had camels. If they'd had a rabbit or something, I think they would be in the Christmas story today. Although on a side note, I think Simeon has maybe one of the most amazing superpowers that anyone has ever heard of. In this day and age where we love superheroes, uh, he was told he wouldn't die until he had seen the Messiah of Israel, which means he was invincible until then. That guy could have like just gone out playing in traffic and he's like, whatever, nobody can hit me. I haven't seen Jesus yet. And there's a mugging going on. He's like, oh, I can charge bravely in and defend that guy because what are they going to do? Stab me? I haven't seen Jesus yet. Can't die. Um, so if I, I'm just saying, if I had that superpower, I would be living very large, very brave life uh, if I were Simeon. But, right, but this is the story and it clearly, it matters uh, because Luke put it in there. And it maybe doesn't matter enough or it's not cute enough to make our own version of the story, but it's there and there's a reason for it. And I'll tell you, the reason for it is that I believe this story is what gives us the meaning of the larger nativity story. 
You see, when you look at the other parts of the nativity story, you, know, you have angels tell the shepherds, you know, there's going to be good news of great joy because of this baby, but they don't really say why. Or the wise men, they bring these gifts because they know he's going to be a king, but you don't really know what kind of king he's going to be. I mean, you've got all this confusion with Herod. Uh, you know, what kind of king? And this is the part where we actually see why this birth matters and why we're going to be talking about this birth for the next 2,000 years. And as our entry point into exploring that, I want to actually jump ahead to something that Jesus would say about himself 30 years later. This is what Jesus said. He spoke to the people once more and he said, I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. This is one of the most amazing promises and titles of Jesus that he would be a light in a dark place. And if you were here uh, at all uh, over Christmas for any of our many Christmas uh, services, you would have heard a little bit about this light of the world that comes to, to clear the darkness. But we're going to unpack uh, a little more uh, in depth, uh, a little longer about what this actually means. Because it's one of those things that sounds good, looks great on a bumper sticker. Like, okay, Jesus is the light, great. What does it actually mean for us? And I believe there's a few things that we need to to unpack and look at, that Jesus Christ shines to accomplish a few things in our life. And the first is this, that the light of Jesus shines to expose the law's true purpose. This might not be something you would have predicted or this doesn't necessarily seem obvious, but it's interesting where Luke goes, straight from the shepherds to this very odd moment that certainly rings a little foreign to modern American ears, uh, that the very next thing Luke describes in the midst of this cute story is how they go and fulfill the religious rites of the day. But that's the next thing that happens. Let's look again at this passage. It says, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. See, this is so important that Luke actually starts this whole section by saying, he fulfilled the law of the Lord. And this is huge. I feel like this is maybe one of the most misunderstood things about Christianity. You see, people, when they look at Christianity from the outside, they think that it's supposed to be a place for all these self-righteous, holy people who live the law perfectly in their lives. Uh, But any of you who have been in church for a while, you know that church is messy and it's broken and it's filled with just as much brokenness as sin as the rest of the world. The difference is not that we are better at keeping the law than other people. The difference is that there is something else going on within a community of faith. And that's what Jesus Christ is doing. See, he shines to expose the law's true purpose. Because for most of human history, people thought that they, the purpose of the law was, it was our means to make us ourselves right with God. That if you could just live right enough, holy enough, don't steal, don't kill, don't lie, and if you could do all these things, you could earn inclusion in God's community. And, the unfort- and that sounds nice, but the unfortunate reality is what that meant was people were bound up and burdened in guilt and shame and despair. Because anyone who has tried to take seriously the living of God's law realizes very quickly that they can't do it. And that if we're using the law and righteous living uh, in order to live up to God's standards, we're doomed. See, but all the way at the very beginning of this Christmas story, Luke is giving us a glimpse of what Jesus would do. That he would come to fulfill the law perfectly. 
Later on, Jesus would say, I have not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. And Christians have always struggled, anyone who reads the Bible has struggled with figuring out what he means by that. Because abolishing the law would be making it not count anymore. It doesn't matter anymore. And clearly the law still matters. And so what ends up happening is Christians say, okay, he fulfilled the law, but we still have to live up to the law somehow. What I'm telling you this morning is that is no longer true. In fact, it was never true. Jesus finally gave us the glimpse, the light that we needed to understand the law. And here's what it is, is that Jesus, through his fulfillment of the law, shifted the law from a burden to a gift. See, it's not that God's rules go away. It's that we learn for the first time through Jesus what they were intended for, and they were intended to bless us. They were intended to help us, make us be happier, make our lives be better. They were never intended to be this burden in this way that we had to earn God's approval. There's a metaphor that might help us understand this a little better. You know, picture kind of this idealized romance, right? This, this perfect love story between a couple. And, and while they're dating, uh, you know, the pursuer, the guy, you know, he uh, is doing all of these things, these legal requirements, these kind of law things to earn the affection and love of the girl, right? So he takes her out to dinner and he writes her all these notes and he does all these romantic gestures, right? These are all kind of law things, right? And he does all these things because if he does these long enough, if he lives up to these expectations, he may at some point finally trick her into marrying him, right? And, and that is the classic understanding of the law, right? That if you, if you don't do these things, if you don't woo her well, if you don't make her feel special, if you don't do all these requirements rightly, then she's going to reject you and you're going to break up and, and it's not going to work out. But if you can do it all right, you can earn her approval and she will one day marry you and, and you've, you've earned this all through the law. But now notice how those requirements shift once a couple has gotten married. Now, there's the bad way that it shifts, which is that he stops doing those things once they're married. But again, picture this idealized romance, the way a romance is supposed to go. See, now now that they're married, theoretically, he is still going to take her out for nice dinners and write her nice notes, but not because he's trying to earn anything anymore. He's already earned it. She's already said yes. She's already accepted him. Now he does those things purely out of the blessing and the goodness because life is better when you get to share these things with, the, with your helpmates and your life partner right? See, before you're married, you've got to do those things to win your spouse. After you're married, you get to do those things because you enjoy your spouse so much. This is the picture of the law that Jesus gives to us, that before we had Jesus, people thought you, you've got to do the law so you can earn God's favor. And after Jesus, what happens is God says, no, you've always had my favor, I've always accepted you unconditionally. You've always been my adopted children just because I love you. And now you get to do the law because it's going to make your life better. See, Jesus shines a light on the way we approach the world, the way we approach the things that we're obligated or required to do. And then the law itself ceases to be a burden, becomes a gift, something that God's given us for our own sakes, for our own benefit. So that's the first thing that Jesus Christ shines a light to do. The second thing uh, is also really important as well, that that Jesus' light shines the way to salvation. All right, let's go back to the text. 
when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, again, remember, he's, he's fulfilling the law, Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Excuse me. Quick note here. I want you to see why this story is so important. You would think at this point that Mary and Joseph, who had seen all of these miraculous things, they'd seen angel visions and shepherds coming in, uh, you'd think they'd maybe understand a little better about what was going on, and yet it's clear from the story that they still didn't get it. They knew that Jesus was special. They knew that the angels and all this stuff meant something big. But it took Simeon explaining to them his purpose for them to actually start to begin to understand. And when he said specifically what Jesus was going to do, you see Mary and Joseph saying, oh my goodness, wow, that's, that's a lot. This is, this is a big deal. And again, that's why it matters for us to not just let this be a forgotten story because if Mary and Joseph needed to hear it, how much more do we need to hear it? But now to get into the meat of it, that, that this is what Simeon is saying, that this is the path of salvation. Picture the scene. The Jewish people have been living in subjugation for centuries at this point. They're a, they're a second-rate class where, where they're, they're in the Roman Empire and, and they're treated as second-rate citizens that their property can be taken with no repercussions. They can be forced into labor without anyone uh, saying a word or defending or protecting them. They're living in a dark time. And more than ever, they needed a light of hope, a light that would shine the path to salvation. And interestingly enough, we're not too dissimilar from the Jewish people then. At a surface level, we are. We're living the most blessed and materially comfortable lives of any human beings in history. I mean, we have a phone in our pocket that that gives us access to uh, all the collected knowledge of the world and Candy Crush. Same time. And yet, when you look at at the people that study this and measure this, um, anxiety has never been higher. Sociologists, as they measure generations, and this is a worldwide trend, not just in the United States, that that this upcoming generation is more lonely and depressed, more angry and aggressive, more anxious than the generations that went before. And it's not just the upcoming generation. I I feel it even at our age and our level that, that I know I'm certainly more anxious and worried than I've ever been before. And as comfortable as our lives are, I think more and more we're starting to realize how unstable our security and our safety is. Uh, I especially see it in uh, our viewing habits, uh, that people are starting out to break out movies and TV shows based on whether they trigger our anxiety or whether they soothe our anxiety. And maybe that sounds silly or that sounds like, you know, some, you know, postmodern, you know, kindness, millennial, you know, stuff. But, But think about it this way. Netflix just paid $80 million to renew the streaming rights for the TV show Friends. Because they know that that soothes anxiety. And they know that when given the choice between watching some new Oscar-nominated movie or watching a 25-year-old sitcom about just some people who like each other, which one we're going to pick. We're as worried and anxious as we've ever been 
in spite of our material comforts, we're living in darkness in a lot of ways. And we need to know that there is hope outside of our own systems and our own stable you know, security factors. We need the hope of Christ or else this world gets too hard to bear. That's the second thing. And if I'd been hearing this message growing up just in the kind of churches that I grew up in, this would have been the end of the story. Someone would have said, yep, Jesus came to fulfill the law perfectly, so now we're off the hook, we're, we got, you know, we're, we're made right with God, and then he came to offer us salvation. We've got heaven waiting for us. And so now go and have a great day, enjoy your brunch. But I was noticing when I was reading the passage this week that there's actually a third promise that Simeon makes, and it's actually the one that uh, shocked me and is changing my life the most, and so I want to spend a little time on it. You see, this wasn't the end of Simeon's prophecy. He went on to say something else, which gives us a third thing that Jesus Christ shines a light to do, to illuminate our own hearts. And I don't know how you're receiving this in the moment. I'll tell you how I'm receiving it. This seems silly compared to the first two. The first two seem big. The law was condemning us and burdening us, and Jesus set us free from the law. And the world is a dark place, and Jesus gives us the hope of salvation and heaven. Yes, and he illuminates our hearts. That feels like some touchy-feely psychopop you know, babble. What is that all about? But it's in there. It's in the story. Let's go back to the text. Then Simeon blessed them again, and he said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The NLT puts it this way. I think it's really beautiful. Just the deepest thoughts of your heart will be revealed. And even if I had read that previously, I got to tell you, my eyes would have glossed right over that. I would have said, okay, that's nice. That's that's very touchy-feely. Okay. Um, But the more I looked at that this week, the more I realized that this is actually just as important as the first two points. You see, we actually talk about the thoughts of our hearts today, it's, a, it's actually becoming a really growing field of study because people are realizing how important it is. We don't call it the deepest thoughts of our hearts. We call it emotional intelligence. And if you've been in leadership uh, or any sort of development kind of thing, you've probably heard about this concept of emotional intelligence and how important we're realizing that it is. And just to give you one example, uh, many of you have heard of IQ, right? Your intelligence quotient what you might not know is that the reason IQ was developed was because people were looking for a way to predict an individual's success and happiness and fulfillment in life. And so they figured IQ was the answer because it's not uh, purely about your intelligence, it's about your ability to learn. And they said, let's figure this out. If you've got a higher ability to learn, a higher IQ, we predict that you are going to do better than someone who is unable to learn. And you and I have grown up in that world. For the last 70 years, that's been the prevailing model. But what's happened is now that we've had 70 years of studies to really examine the hypothesis, what they've learned is IQ does not track to real world success, happiness, and fulfillment. There's no correlative connection at all, which is really messing up a lot of people that put all their eggs in that basket. 
I'll tell you, it messes me up. I shared a few weeks ago um, about how I flunked out of college uh, the first time I went. Uh, and I got some interesting feedback from people after I shared that up here. I had a lot of people that, that following week uh, come up to me and say, you flunked out of college. We thought you were smart. And I'm like, well, well first of all, Thanks. But then secondly, it's given me the opportunity to point out to them that you can be as smart as you want to be, but if you stay up all night hanging out with friends and then sleep through all of your classes, your IQ is not going to help you succeed in college. And what I've learned in recent years is that the thing I was missing was I had good IQ, I had zero EQ, the emotional intelligence, which is all about self-awareness and understanding your own heart. And knowing what things drive and motivate you because you're willing to look at the state of your own heart. And what they're finding now that they're starting to study this is that when asking people their ability to examine and know the deepest thoughts of their heart, more than two-thirds of people are completely unable. Completely unable to diagnose something as simple as, how are you feeling right now? And it's not just the guys before you assume that, all right? It's ladies too. And what they found is that of high performers in companies, people that are making more money or living more successful lives, that when they measure those people, 90% of those people are able to explain and recognize, diagnose, and deal with the deepest thoughts of their own heart. Those people have emotional intelligence. And it's far more correlative to living a life that is happy, successful, fulfilling than your IQ. And so if this is true, now we're suddenly starting to see why this matters. You see, because the first thing Jesus did is he shines a light that sets us free from the burden of, of the law. The second thing he does is he gives us an eternal life. He gives us a hope of something great, greater after death. But this third thing is, this is what we need to live this life, right here, right now, in ways that give us joy and hope and peace. This is not just some afterthought or some nice thing that Simeon said at the end, you know, like in a get well soon card. No, he's saying he's going to shine a light on the deepest thoughts of our hearts. And we need that in order to live the way we want to live. And what's crazy to me is that the world is actually starting to recognize that. Aside from any revelation of the Bible or scripture, the world's starting to figure out we need to know our hearts better. But what I also believe is that without access to the light of Jesus Christ, the world will hit a wall. That our hearts are veiled to us. And that if we just try to kind of come at them through psychological principles alone or sociological principles alone, there's only so much we're going to be able to learn. But if we take Simeon's words seriously, we start to see that Jesus Christ is actually the key to seeing our own hearts rightly. In fact, Paul says it this way a little bit later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul's talking about this good news, the good news of Jesus being born, the Christmas story. And if this good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it's dark to so many people, but it is hidden only from people who are perishing. And by that, that's just a phrase for the people who don't know the saving light of Jesus Christ. Satan, who is actually the God of this world, has blinded the minds and the hearts of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For the same God that said, let there be light in the darkness at creation 
has made this light shine where? In our hearts. So that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And here's where he sums it all up. We now have this light shining in our hearts. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. And this makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. This light shining in our hearts is the thing that actually reveals the truth of ourselves and who we are. And just as importantly as Christ freeing us from the law, saving us from the darkness around us, is Christ illuminating the darkness inside of us for the sake of living a life that's full in the way that God would like it to be for us. This is a big deal, to me anyway. Because I tell you, as I grew up, I, I, I heard verses that, that told me that our hearts are awful. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. And I just assumed that that meant that there was nothing good in me or in my heart. But what I'm learning is that those verses are in the Bible, and, but they're describing the hearts that don't know Jesus. If your heart doesn't know Jesus, then yes, your heart will be deceitful. Your heart will lead you astray because your heart is in darkness. It's not saying that your heart is bad. It's just saying that a heart without light shining on it and illuminating it will lead us astray. But once Jesus Christ comes, once he saves us from death, once he accepts us into God's family unconditionally, our heart is actually a source of fulfillment and joy. Our heart is actually something that we should be proud of and we should embrace. Our heart is actually the representative way that God made you and me special and unique. Our heart's something to take delight in. There's a quote from a Franciscan friar uh, that's really powerful to me. I want to share it with you right now. Thomas Merton says this. He says, for me to be a saint means to be myself. And I want to just pause there for a second. Do you you guys hear how radical that is? For most of my life, the way I've understood it is that to be a saint meant to deny yourself, right? Like, oh, to be a saint, that means I got to pretend like I have no needs or thoughts or desires and all I want is is God and I want to just be playing a harp in heaven or whatever that looks like for you. I want to deny myself and that's what makes me be a saint. But this guy, this monk is saying, no, actually to be a saint means to be myself, And therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation, those are just words that mean living this holy life that God would want for us, is in fact the problem of finding out who I am and of discovering my true self. You see, for most of my life, if I'd heard anything about illuminating my heart, I would have dismissed that as, oh yeah, illuminate my heart so that I can realize how bad I am and then I can put my focus right back on God. But instead, what we're seeing in this Christmas story, what we're seeing through 2 Corinthians 4 and the quote of uh, Thomas Merton, is that our heart is illuminated not so we can discard it and focus back on God. Our heart is illuminated so that we can see ourselves truly and clearly for the first time. So that we can see our hearts the way God sees our hearts, the way he intended us to be. And rather than trying to conform our hearts and try to make ourselves live up to some cookie-cutter ideal of Christianity, we could lean into the fullness of what God designed us to be from the dawn of time. You see, 
we're actually going to be starting a series next week called The Nine Paths. I'll talk a little bit more about it later. But what this series is doing is it's actually exploring this point that I'm making here today. That our hearts, if they were made by God, and if they are uniquely designed by God, then our hearts matter. And knowing what's in our hearts, knowing what motivates us, also what scares us, knowing what temptations are going to have greater hold on us, or knowing what desires are going to motivate us better than anything else, that's actually crucial to living a life that God would want for us. And so I invite you to come back next week and and be a part of that journey with us. But right now here today, I simply want to say this, that Jesus Christ is shining a light over you right now. And part of it is to save you from the law that would bear you down with guilt and despair. Part of the light is shining to save you from the despair of the world around you. But just as much of Jesus' light is shining to give you delight and joy in who he made you to be to expose your inner heart so that you could live a life that is self-aware, that you could have emotional intelligence that the world's starting to figure out we need, and so that you could see ever more clearly how special God made you and the life he wants you and uniquely you to live. Pray that light shines and pushes away the darkness. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, I give you thanks here today for the light of Jesus Christ that shines in the world. Lord, I thank you that in a world of darkness, you sent your son to shine us towards something greater. And so Lord, here now today, I ask that you would set people free from whatever it is that's been holding them prisoner, whether that's from the burdens of a law that make them feel riddled with guilt and shame, whether that's from the fear of the things in this world around us that lead us to anxiety and hopelessness, or Lord, whether it's setting us free from our own lack of understanding of ourselves. And Lord, that through your light, you would guide us to better, fuller, and more joyful paths, both in this life and the next. Amen.